Good evening. Welcome. Glad to see you guys tonight. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2 this evening. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, this book was introduced to us. And uh, you may recall that if you were, you were here that 1 Timothy is a pastoral uh, epistle. It's really just a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote back to his beloved Timothy, his son in the faith, that he had set up um, in a church, in a troubled church in the city of Ephesus. So this is Paul, mentor Paul, writing to his little protege, Timothy, who he had set up as a pastor in a troubled church, looking to help him out a little bit. If you want to really know the aim of this book, it's in the next chapter. It's in chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says this, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. It, it says, listen, I urge, I want to come and help you. <laughs> this place is a mess. I want to come. But if I'm delayed, he was in Rome. If I'm delayed, I want you to know how to behave in the house of God. That's the goal of this. How to behave, how to do church, Right? This thing we call church service. How do we do this public worship, this public teaching, public prayer? How do we do that? And so that's the strength of this book. Last week, we saw that uh, the topic was doctrine, right? We need to clean up the doctrine, right? There's a lot of false teaching going on, and that was his first priority in chapter one. We saw that a couple of weeks ago with Justin. Today, there's really two topics we're going to cover. One, it's the Christian's prayer life. Okay? And then second of all, it's really how uh, we are to have our public demeanor in church, our conduct and the roles of men and women in church, how we're to do this thing we call church. So if you are taking notes or outlining, it's real simple. It's, we're going to crack this right in half. Verses 1 through 7 is just the Christian's prayer life, privately and publicly. We're going to look into the extent of our prayers, and the reason for our prayers. That's verses 1 through 7. Verses 8 through 15, the second half of this chapter, is really the Christian and his conduct during public worship, during public service. How are we supposed to conduct ourselves? We'll see, we'll get into the roles of the men and the women in the church and how we are supposed to act, right? So those are our two, that's our outline. Let's start right away. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let me read you the first seven verses. First of all, then, Paul would say to Timothy, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceable and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Father, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. Amen? So verses one through seven is really the Christian in our communication with God, our prayer life. And I look what Paul says here in verse one, going back over it now, it says, first of all, then. <laughs> prayer should be a priority. First of all, I'm, I'm gonna tell you something, Timothy, in this chapter, and first of all, he goes off on prayer. Prayer should be a priority not only in our personal lives, but in our public lives, corporately, here. It should, it's important. We need to communicate with God, right? After all, what is a relationship without communication? Have you ever seen people that stop talking? It's not a good sign. I gotta be careful. Sometimes my wife... I'll come home from work and I deal with people all day long 
and, and, and she starts talking, and I just can't keep up with the intensity or the, the tempo. And sometimes I'll just go, uh, and, and she say, are you growling at me? <laughs> right? that's, not, that's not good. I need to try to keep up with her. Right? After all, what is our relationships if we can't talk to each other? It's no different with God. We need to communicate with him. Sometimes I feel like my relationship with the Lord isn't that great because, first of all, <laughs> my prayer life is falling. It's falling away. And so I like how Paul refocuses us, right? He says, first of all, I want you to think about your prayer life in your own personal and in when we gather, I want you to think about prayer a little bit. And I don't know about you, but <laughs> prayer is a lot like working out for me sometimes. Like, I don't want to do it, but when I do it, I feel so good. And I go, why don't I do that more? Right? You know, you know that cycle? The more you do it, the easier it gets. That's, that's how prayer is. That's why it's a discipline. Prayer is invigorating. It brings vitality into our lives and into this place. Amen. It does that. The, the thing it does for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, is it focuses us in on God Almighty. It's like, okay, here's a doorway we went through. <sighs> leave all that. I can leave all that behind. And I can focus in on the pure awesomeness, if you will, of God Almighty. Amen? And that immediately brings vitality and vigor to the believer into this service, amen? That's the first thing it does for me when we start thinking about him. We start recognizing who he is, right? His authority, his power, his beauty, his liberty that we have in the presence of God, it just focuses us in on, on him, and it just brings a vitality we need in church. And so Paul knows that. The other thing it does for me is, I don't know about you, but it, it kind of puts things in perfect perspective. Because I don't know about you, but, but, but life can, can suck the life out of you. <laughs> Your grind can grind you, into, right? The daily grind can grind you. And sometimes you just need a healthy dose of perspective. And when we pray, Right? We pray to the great physician sometimes for needs and health. You realize that I'm the patient and he's the doctor. That's perspective. We pray to a God that provides all needs, Jehovah Jireh, and we realize that he's the giver and I'm really the taker. Right? It puts things in perfect perspective. Our humanity is laid out there and his divinity is laid out there and you find yourself saying, He's God and I'm not. Prayer focuses and puts us in a, a proper perspective. Amen? That's why Paul says, listen, we haven't even got out of the first verse yet. First of all, <laughs> prayer. Amen? The extent of this prayer, he goes on in verse 1. He says, I want to urge you to supplicate, to prayer, to intercede, to give thanksgiving for all people. And if you notice there, there's four forms of communication, right? General term, there's four ways to communicate with God when you pray here that he mentions. The first one, I'm just gonna call them the fantastic four for all. Got it? A lot of Fs there. Fantastic four for all, that's that verse one. The first one of the four is supplications. And this is just simply requests, <laughs> asking for ourselves and others. We're just, we're just asking, both privately and corporately, right? And I don't know about you, but sometimes we have not because we, we just don't ask. There's nothing wrong with that. And one of the things I love about Edgewater is how on Sundays we do public prayer requests. It's beautiful. It's one way you can make something really big, small, and intimate. Because we should want to know others' needs, amen? We might just be able to meet them, <laughs> right? We should want to, Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens, amen? 
I love that. When people turn in cards and we read it up here and we pray for them. That's a small church thing. And I love that, that we're not too big to supplicate for other people. Amen? It's just supplication. It's just asking for selves and others. The prayer request. Two, we're also, he urges us to pray. And that is such a generic word in the English. You got to get into the original to really understand that word. All of this is prayer. He mentions a word. It's always translated prayer. A lot of times, not always, but sometimes it's in the original. It just, it's really, it's our worship word. It's the same root in the Greek that we use when we say we worship God. Has the idea here that we're focusing in on God, on his character and his nature. It's simply telling him back what he testifies to be as to his character and nature. Just focusing in on God. That's a wonderful thing. (laughs) And Paul's encouraging us to do that. It's doing this. Remember that old hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Things of earth will turn strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's worship. I'm turning my eyes on him. And I'm going to tell you, when I do that and I look into his face, when I start to focus in on his presence in my life, Something else just goes dim in light of his glory and grace. Amen? That's what that word prayer means. And he urges us to communicate with him and tell him back. It's healthy. It's great. The next one, intercession. The third out of the fantastic four. And that just simply means, literally, it means standing. Is someone else standing between a king for someone else. It's me stepping in between God and saying, my brother, my sister has a need and I'm coming before you, king of the universe, and I'm interceding for them. Amen? It's epitomized in the saying, I'll pray for you, right? And, but actually do it, <laughs> right? I'm praying for you. That's Christianese. See you later. (laughs) Sometimes. Right? It's standing between a king for someone else. The last one. And I think this last one is called Thanksgiving. Everybody knows what that is, right? I think it's the anchor of the Fantastic Four. Like the fastest relay guy, the Thanksgiving's always a premium in my life. I don't know about you. Who has it better than the Christian? We should be the most thankful people on planet Earth. Amen? No one has it better. If you are an authentic Christian and you know what that means and what he did for you in the state that you were in, we should just wake up every day and go, thank you. Let me count the ways that I am thankful Right? As the song goes, count your blessings one by one and see what God has done. But it's always at a premium in my life. I have to remind myself to be thankful. And one morning, I got at an elder meeting and I I went to go to another meeting, which I do on Tuesdays. There were staff meetings at at my office. And before I started, I don't know, I was feeling pretty frisky, I guess. I was feeling pretty invigorated because I had just got out of an elder meeting. They're so invigorating, you know. But I said, hey, before we start, let's all just go around and just say one thing you're thankful for. I don't know why I said that. I was like, what's going to happen here? You should have seen what happened. (laughs) There's probably 25 people there. And there were numerous people that that started crying. Some happy tears, some sad tears. But I was like, I just broke down my staff by just asking him to be thankful. It was crazy. I usually try to break them down other ways, like not giving them a lunch or working them on Christmas Eve. It's all I had to do is say, hey, why don't you go around and say something thankful for, that you're thankful for? And I was just blown away 
right now, in the middle of this, whatever we're going through, pandemic for better, whatever's happening right now in the world, it's weird, is it not? Just be thankful and you will rock people. You will blow people away. Just be a grateful person. Have an attitude of gratitude and people will be like, what's wrong with you? It's all doom and gloom. It's all, don't you know? <laughs> right? Say, so, yeah, I know. And I'm still thankful. Amen? <laughs> Thanksgiving is a gem. <laughs> and it's at a premium right now. And God's people need to be thankful now more than ever. Amen? And so let's do that. Paul, right now, first of all, supplicate, worship, intercede, be, thanks, be thankful. There's our fantastic four. And for all, he says, he finishes off that verse by saying, for all people. Oh, we should be ready and willing to pray for all types of people without distinction. Right? It's anyone. Not everyone is the emphasis here. All types of people without distinction. You can't pray for everybody in the world, but you can pray for anybody in the world. That's the idea here. All people. We should be ready and willing to do that. Even our leaders, he goes on to say in verse two, and I know that's a tough one. We're <laughs> political approvement among the people are not that good right now, to say the least, right? It says here in verse two, yeah, we're gonna pray for all people, but for especially kings and all who are in high positions. That's crazy talk, Dan. Do you know who our governor is? I do. The other side would say, that's crazy talk, Dan. Do you know who our president is, right? It goes both ways. It was so funny. I was walking out of my office through the parking lot and I saw two cars parked next to each other, two bumper stickers. One said, I, I think it said, my governor's an idiot. Have you seen that one or something like that? I was like, oh, but that, I've seen that before. I look right next to it and there's a, a car parked right next to it and it had a picture of President Trump on it. And it said, is my car making my Trump look bigger? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> that, I don't care who you are, that's funny. Never seen that one before, but I'm thinking, I hope those guys didn't see each other. Man, right? Both sides. Everybody's got something to complain about. Sometimes I find it hot, really hard to pray for some of these jokers we got in there, just to be straight up honest with you, right? It's hard. But Paul's saying, listen, all people, all types of people, and then he lists specifically kings and those who have authority over us, right? We should pray for them, whether they want it or not, or whether they are godly or not. It doesn't matter. After all, do you know who the king was at this time? That was Nero. He had already started his campaign killing Christians for sport. In fact, Paul was in Rome under prison right now being persecuted by Nero. And he's saying, please pray for our king. That's the attitude, guys. That's the attitude. It's pray for those who are above us. Doing so acknowledges the fact <laughs> that they are only there under the authority of God himself. Did you know that? It's God that put those people in power. It's God. When we pray for them like this, we acknowledge the fact that you may feel like a political pawn sometimes in the game of life. Do you? I do. They're nothing but puppets. That's who they are. God moves them like chess pieces across the board to get what he needs to get done in this world done. And for some reason, he put them there. So when we pray for that, we acknowledge them. God's got them right in his hand. Don't ever forget that. Proverbs chapter 21, verse one says this, <laughs> the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of God, and he directs it as he pleases. I like that. King's heart. He moves it. 
And that's the story of the Bible. You can see governments come and go, and you can see God using them to get what he wants to for his people, whether it was the, the Israelites or the Christians. He moves them. Amen? We need to acknowledge that. Right? The reason we, de- we need to pray for all people, especially those who have authority over us, is, is told to us in the next couple of verses. It says, I don't know if you see that, we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may live a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Number one reason we should pray is what he's saying is, listen, so you can live a quiet and peaceable life, godly and dignified. Paul's saying, more prayer, less anger. (laughs) More prayer, less agitation. Exchange, it's a godly exchange, right? That we'd have attitudes, right? That would be peaceable and quiet. We'd have lives that are just peaceable and quiet, right? A sister verse of this is over in Philippians chapter four, verse six. Do you remember that's a famous little passage? It says, be anxious in nothing, remember? But by prayer and supplication, right? Right? Make your requests known to God. And as a result, the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? There's your exchange. It's a divine exchange. You give me all your anxiety, all your agitation, right? All your ungodliness, all your undignified talk about politics, all of that stuff. You, you change that in when you pray, is what he's saying, for peace and quiet in our cities and in our hearts. So I would say 2021, we should pray more, right? So our city will be quiet and peaceable. So our hearts and our families will be more peaceable and quiet, more dignified and more godly, amen? When I start getting revved up about politics, I just can't believe how ungodly and undignified I can be sometimes. And they got it coming, don't get me wrong. But that doesn't change the fact, right? That we're to change that in. Stop throwing your slipper at the TV when you're watching the news. Just turn it off and pray. Amen? Okay. That's the first reason that we are to pray so we may live a quiet and peaceable life. The second reason is here. It's the next couple of verses. Let me read it. It's actually uh, verse four. Uh, Check it out. Let's go back. Um, For king, we should pray for kings and all in high positions that we may lead peaceable and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It's pleasing the sight of the God or Father. God our Savior, for who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. I don't know if you saw that in those verses, but the second reason we are to pray is to fulfill the will of God. Now listen. Paul is saying here that a prayer for life is good and acceptable because it's the way, I think, at least in a little way, the way God loosens people up for salvation. It's like the body blow in boxing. You might not feel it now, but you're going to feel it in the late rounds. It's softening them up for the knockout blow, right? When we pray for people, we can participate in a way for people's salvation, which is the will of God. Verse four should make us all just say, who is this God we serve? He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Peter would say in his second epistle, a second letter, I just, he would desire none to perish. Who is this guy? Who is this God? How awesome. All types of people, without distinction, he desires to come to him. Think about this. We don't think like this. This is not a human concept. Shows you the heart of our God. We serve such an awesome God. He desires that none would perish. He he wants all to be saved and come to knowledge. 
you know what's um, you know what's really in right now is social justice, and some of it's good, and some of it I don't know. But, but you want to know who who started social justice? Our God. He desires all. Not all. It, the emphasis in the word there it's without distinction. It means anyone. Anyone. The emphasis is not everyone. It's anyone who wants to come to him, no matter your station in life, your socioeconomical status, the color of your skin, the sex that you are, the, even the condition of your heart, it matters not. He says, come and come as you are. Christian, that's social justice. Amen? That's the God we serve. He desires all people to come to him and partake. But the next two verses, five and six, I just entitled, all, that's a big range. He wants all. It narrows down to come through one person. Check it out, verse five and six. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all. So listen, all for one. There's one God. And they all (laughs) must come through that one God. And through and by means of one mediator, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Correct? Now listen, (laughs) all of you guys remember John 14, verse 6. It just, Jesus stood up there, remember? Remember? outside of the tabernacle and said, I am the light of the world, right? He also said in, sorry, that's a different verse. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? I'm the way. There's one way to God. He is the mediator between God, holy God, and sinful man. He's the bridge back to God, Jesus Christ, emphasis, the man, Jesus Christ. Remember? Do you remember John 3, 16, when when, when it says uh, God gave his only begotten son, right? That word there is unique, one of a kind. That's what begotten means. It's there's none like this, this man, this son, only begotten, unique. He was the God man, fully divine fully human. He's the only one qualified to stand between God and man because he's the God man, right? (laughs) He's the mediator, Jesus Christ. He's the way back. He bridges the gulf between a holy God and sinful man, amen? All without distinction funneling through Jesus Christ, the God-man, to God Almighty. That's how it works. All for one. Amen? So, that's prayer, right? Fantastic four for all, funneling down into one, right? So that we may live quiet and peaceable lives, and we, might, we actually might help fulfill God's will, because he wills that all would be saved. Amen? Now, the next section... I don't know how I drew the short stick, but we're going to talk about men and women in church. I know when Matt made this schedule, he's like, oh, let's give Dan two, chapter two. <laughs> this just has to do with the general conduct, our public demeanor in church. And there's nothing crazy about this. It can be controversial when we read some of this. So it requires us to parse these words carefully. And hopefully I won't be canceled tomorrow. Culture cancel, right? Because <laughs> some of this isn't popular right now. But I'll just read the words and you guys can tell me what you think, okay? Let's check it out. The last seven verses. I desire then, Paul says, that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair of gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness 
with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So there you go. All right. Let's be on our way. I'll start with the easy ones. The first two verses, the conduct, the demeanor of men and women in church, there's a ton of overlap here. And it has to do with public prayer, worship. And there's a quality in those roles and those demeanors. They have a little different qualifier on them. But let's read just verse 8 and 9 again. Paul says, I desire that in every place, that means when you gather together in this thing we call a church service, he desires that men should pray and lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. What he's saying is, men, when you lead out to pray or to worship, if your prayer posture is to raise your hands like it was in their culture, when they prayed, they lifted their hands, okay? When you worship in praying through song and you lift your hands, when you do that, men, you should do that with holy hands, without anger and quarreling in your heart. The emphasis here is you should pray. He desires that we do. But when you do, your prayer posture should match your life and your heart. That's all he's saying. Please lift up holy hands. In other words, if a man was to stand up here and pray with open hands and say a lot of beautiful, eloquent, awesome words about the Lord, but he was the biggest scoundrel and rascal in town, does that reflect good or bad on God and his church? Not very good. That's all he's saying here. Let your outward posture reflect your inward heart. You shouldn't be anger and resentment and quarreling. You shouldn't be this rascal that just left a deal where you ripped some old lady off. And then you came in here and you told everybody how holy you are. That was happening in this church. And he said, when you lift your hands, make sure they are holy, which means separated unto God himself. Make sure you're in good relation with God before you go out there and publicly show everybody how holy you are. Does that make sense? So the qualifier for men are please pray. Whatever your posture is, you can lift holy hands, you can bow your head, whatever that is, they can be differently, different culturally or just the way that you're built. Paul says, great, do it. Just make sure they're holy hands. Make sure your posture matches your heart and your life. That's it. He goes on to talk about women. Likewise, verse nine, which tells us that he's connecting men and women, right? So men, when you lead out and pray, women, when you lead out and pray, which they can and should and do better than men most of the time, when you do that, look at the qualifier for them. Check it out. You should adorn yourself in a respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good deeds. It's all he's saying, women. When you lead out in prayer, prayer, when you lead out in worship up here, when you worship, the qualifier is, is dress modestly. Think about what you're putting on before you come to church so you're not a distraction in a good or bad way, okay? And just remember, this ain't a disco. This is church, okay? That's a saying I have for my wife. She's getting ready, getting ready. What are you, what? We're not going to a disco, 
We're going to a football game, right? Modesty, self-control. Think about what you're putting on on the outward, right? That's all he's saying. Paul's not trying to regulate dress here. I mean, you can get off in the weeds here. Because some of these words, if you start looking at an original, I mean, Bible teachers, they can really get off in the weeds. They're like, well, should women wear cosmetics? Because that's the Greek word for cosmos. And they shouldn't adorn them. They shouldn't wear makeup in church. It's just, it's weird. I remember, it was funny, I was reading about often one of these weeds when I was studying it, and, and J. Vernon McGee, everybody know J. Vernon McGee? I love his accent. He's just an Okie from Skidoki, right? Super brilliant teacher, but he's J. Vernon McGee. And they said, Dr. McGee, can women wear cosmetics? Should they wear makeup in church? And he has that famous quote. She's already laughing. He said this famously, if the barn needs a painting, paint away. (laughs) Cracked me up. He's just trying to bring them back around. That's not the point here. Okay? It's not the point. Paul is just saying, listen, women, your outward appearance should match your posture in prayer and worship. Right? They should see good deeds. That's how you're going to gain influence in a congregation. Not by your flashy dress, dressing too sexy or too frumpy, because whatever it is, it can go both ways. It has nothing to do. And women, I'll just remind you of this, is God sees the inside. Isn't that true? He sees inside of people. Men see the outside of people. And the question that this verse begs, if you're a female, is who are you dressing for? Are you dressing for deity? Or is it something else? It's something to think about. So modesty is the key here. You don't know how many times we've been in elder meetings going in the summer. How do we turn the AC up so people will cover themselves? Right? Not really, but I've thought about bringing that up sometimes. So it's a distraction. That's the idea, guys. Men see the outside. God sees the inside. The emphasis here is women and men both should lead out in prayer. They both should. And they both have qualifiers when they do. The man, when you lift up your hands, whatever your posture is, the outside should match the inside in your life. Women, when you lead out in prayer, make sure your adornment, whatever that is, hair, dress, how you are clothing yourself and making yourself up, matches your insides and your posture of prayer. That's it. Pretty simple, right? We all pray. We all can. We all can lead out in prayer. Amen? All right, let's go. You ready to leave? We're going to keep going here. Okay. All right. So that's what we have in common, right? What we don't have in common is the next verses. And let me read them for you. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she should remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Can't even talk tonight. Sorry, transgressor. So listen, verse 11 clearly states that women, when they learn in church, in a public service, should learn quietly with submissiveness. Now, you can get off the weeds here. Quietly doesn't mean women can't talk in church, okay? It means the word is, you should be peaceable. You should learn in subjection to whoever the man is that's leading over doctrine. I could say the same thing for the men, really. You not want to be a disruptor. That's what it means. It's, it's you're to be peaceable. Quiet isn't the best word. But you are to be submitted to who's teaching. And men should, with the other men up here as well. If there's to be an argument or a dispute, it should not, in public service, it should not come from women. 
is what he's saying. You should learn in a peaceable way. So when Matt's up here pounding away on doctrine, we don't want Kate Scudstad to say, that's not what I heard. That's not what John Corson said. Right? That's the idea. Don't be disruptive. Don't be a challenger. We can, in public service, that's all, that's all it's really saying. They shouldn't cause strife in the church. That's all it's saying. Verse 12, we'll keep going. Then it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she should remain quiet. Now listen, it's clear here that women are not permitted to teach doctrine publicly over a man. That's clear. What it does not say is that women cannot teach because they can and they do and oftentimes better than the men. They're just not teaching public doctrine, have the final authority over theology and doctrine over a man. That's what they're saying. (laughs) Women can teach. They have the same spiritual gift that men do. I remember when I first came here to Edgewater and we're meeting at RCC and one of the first things I did is I worked in the kids wing and I was, I, I, I was in the kids wing and <laughs> I wasn't the teacher, I was the helper. And I was helping in a class when Dan Bowden was, was teaching a class and I was just slack jawed. I was like, are you kidding me right now? These kids were like, they were like, she was like the Pied Piper. She was teaching a lesson, and I was just like, okay, get up and run around. I, I, like, got up and ran around. I was like, okay, whatever. What do you want me to do? I mean, she was an awesome teacher. She knows the Bible. She taught an awesome lesson in Sunday school. It's awesome. I've heard tapes of women teaching other women. But, I mean, Titus says women should teach women. I mean, this is pretty simple stuff that we all know, right? They're to teach, just not over men. I think the idea here, really, is that women are not to have a teaching ministry or an attitude, it's important, that usurps, right, the final doctrine authority over the men of the church. That's it. Sound reasonable? Yeah, see, this is an easy audience. (laughs) Speaking to the choir. So can women be elders and pastors over a church? Not at Edgewater. I think that's what it's saying. It's the final authority over a church as to what scriptures mean. The final authority is to be done by a group of men called elders. That's our stance at Edgewater. I think that's the stance of Paul. And if you look at the entirety of the Bible on this subject, and when we came to this conclusion, we looked at both sides read books, studied it, and some guys, the elders at Edgewater, came up with, no, I don't think the New Testament knows anything of a head pastor over a congregation or an elder that was a woman. And that's where we stand on that. So there you go. And it's not a man. It's men, plural, in unanimity. Unanimity right? Which is a bugger sometimes, right? Each one of us elders have to agree or it doesn't go. So we don't take these things lightly. We take the full orb here, but that's our stance. And the reason for it is explained to us, and I believe these two reasons, and it's not popular in culture today, but I don't care. It's what the word of God says. And you can read it and see what God shows you on it. I'm going to show you two, two reasons why we believe that the final authority of scripture and doctrine over a local assembly is to be done by a man. Men, plural. And they're right here. The first one is in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) First reason is Adam was formed first. 
Now, that may not seem significant to us. For some reason, it's significant in the mind of God, and Paul's reminding us of that, is that Adam was formed first, right? It's important. Adam was God's initiator, his first leader. He was formed out of nothing, right? Out of dirt, was breathed life into him, and he became a man. And do you remember, there was a time period, we don't know how long, but then, out of Adam, God made Eve. And Eve was made awesome. Adam finally had his completer, something that corresponded, something that fit together with him, a helper. He got an equal. Women are not inferior. They are equal, but they are different. They came second out of Adam, and that should tell you something. Eve was made for Adam. That's what she was made for. Can I get an amen? That's what she was made for. That's the idea of Adam being formed first and why men were designed as initiators. So when they lead something, they should lead in a masculine way, which is initiating things. That's all Paul's argument is here. The second reason, verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now listen, people have said, what does Paul know? I read all the books that oppose what I believe on this subject, and a lot of them go back to culture. Paul was an old bachelor back. We've progressed so much today. We're so enlightened now. Things are different now. We're more woke and we're awakened. We're much smarter. And by the way, there were slaves back then and women couldn't vote back then and then we stoned people. Look where we're at now. All those arguments are good arguments. That's why Paul cuts to the chase, passes culture and goes to creation, right? Adam was formed first, and I'm going to give you another way that we were created differently, and it's that Eve was deceived, not Adam. And everybody remembers the garden scene where the men, mankind fell, right? I don't know if you remember that, but let me just remind you that God came to Adam alone and said, Adam, do not eat of this one fruit from this one tree. You can have the rest. You have dominion over everything. Do not eat that. And then Adam went to Eve and said, Eve, hey, boss man, God, God Almighty said not to eat out of this one tree. Got it? That's the chain of command. God, Adam, Eve. Hmm. Remember what happened? The tricky one. Hmm. He came and broke that chain of command, didn't he? And I'm not so sure it was Eve's fault. Where the heck was Adam, is what I want to know. Where was Adam? I don't know. I know this, <laughs> that he came to Eve and tricked Eve. Eve was deceived. To her glory, I really believe Eve thought she was doing something good for Adam and Eve. I mean, this sounds great. But she got tricked. She ate the fruit. And then Adam, it says, was not tricked. Adam knew full well what he was doing. And he transgressed. He sinned. He knew better, was not tricked, but probably chose the woman over God at that point and said, I'm with her. There's a difference in that. And the rest is history when that happened. Did you know that? The rest is history. The curse happened. You and I have running through our bloods the fallout from that event. Do you know that? We got the sinny DNAs. We have a sin nature because that one event, Adam and Eve's failure in that moment runs through our blood right now. And I think 
what Paul's trying to point out here at that creation story about Eve being deceived is, is two things. Listen, leadership is important. When the chain of command is broken, we're more vulnerable. Adam should have been the initiator, the leader spiritually, and that moment he wasn't. And it didn't go so well. And then two, I just, I know this isn't popular now, but, and I'm speaking in general terms, so give me a little leeway. The natural tendencies of women are different than the created natural tendencies of men. I believe that to be true. They just are. Now, there's an exception to every rule, but that is what I think. (laughs) Women are different despite popular belief and men than men. They just are. And not in a worse way or an inferior way, just different. I think Eve was more noble in that moment in the fact that at least she got tricked. At least she thought she was doing something good. And it's the glory to, it is the glory of the woman that she's more sensitive, that she's believed, they're more loving, they're more soft. The loving thing, you know, love believes all things. They're more loving. She was easy, more easily deceived than the men because I think she was more sensitive, more loving, softer. That's to her glory that she's more responsive to what's around her. Man, listen to your wife. Listen to your mom. They have a sense, men, that you have know nothing about. If you haven't figured that out yet, just you're, you're that dumb. They have a awesome way about them, but it's also what makes them have a little more liability in being deceived, and that's his point. (laughs) My wife, Stephanie, when she watches a wrestling match, some moms are like, kill him, kill him, kill him. My wife's not like, I kind of felt sorry for that guy that gave bead. I'm like, "What? what? What are you talking about? He would have done it to us. You know, it's a different mindset, you know? That's all he's saying. It leaves the woman a little more likely to be deceived than a man. He went back to creation. Adam first, Eve was deceived. Now listen, we're going to finish up here with a, a really weird verse. It says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, if you read, that's just a weird verse. And there's all sorts of people that think all sorts of things about that. And I'll just, I'm not, I wouldn't have time to share some of the possibilities of what that means. Here's what I think it means in the context. I take it from the word yet and saved. We just talked about how Eve was disqualified. Women are disqualified from being the final authority. They can't take that away from the men of the church because of the way they're made back in creation. And he uses the word yet. It's like a consolation, like a consolation prize that actually is better than the real prize is what he's getting at here. Yet, I said you can't do this, but now in contrast, as a consolation prize, it's better probably than the other prize you're going to be saved. And this doesn't mean into salvation. This means this saved word, is, it, can be, it can be translated fulfillment, to be satisfied, to be all that a woman was designed to be. That's what I think this means. Yet, you can't do this, but you know what you can do? You can do something far better. You will find your greatest fulfillment women that have children. You will have your greatest fulfillment, it says, in raising a family and being a mother to them. That's what, that's what he's saying. That may sound pretty chauvinistic, but it shows you how far we've fallen and degraded the status of a mother and a woman. 
Because that is not a consolation prize. It's a powerful thing to be a mother. It's an important thing to be a mother. And if we had not, not lost this in our country, we'd probably be in a different direction right now. You ever hear that saying, that old proverb, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? Could you imagine if every Christian mother in the world took their job so serious that they looked at it as their fulfillment, their greatest potential as a human being to sow into their kids godly things? Could you imagine the world? We would, Christians, we, they would rule the world. We would rule the world. <laughs> it wouldn't be what it is now. I think that's what he's saying here in this. You will be saved in raising kids. You will be, find your greatest fulfillment, mothers, those who have kids and grandkids, and sowing into them, passing along to them what it is to be a woman or a, a man. Amen? Amen? Women, you are significant. You're more than significant. You have the potential to rock the cradle of the world in your job in a way that a man could never do, ever. You guys are amazing. I say this all the time in my clinic. Oh, I have dry eyes. Is your postmenopausal, your women? And, and, and sometimes I think, good grief. Their bodies are so complex. I'm like, what in the world? I'm an eye doctor. And I'm like, your eyes are dry because you're, oh, oh, yeah, you, you are, hormones. And I'm thinking, God, you have to do cycles and then childbirth and then men. What in the world? And then I stop. And I go, you know what? With a little help from a man, a lot of help from God, you can grow a baby inside your body. Now, come on. Seriously. That is not something degrading. That's something wonderful. And I think, <laughs> a little uncomfortable to talk about some of these controversial topics or, I don't know, topics that can divide people. And I started getting woke guilt when I was thinking about this. You know what that is? Like, that didn't sound like very popular. It didn't sound very, I don't know. I just started, I'm like, and you know what I, you know what I, I ended with? <laughs> How's it going right now? Since the 1960s, when the liberation, the women's liberation movement happened, right? And we started degrading, I think, the true fulfillment and satisfaction of a woman, right? Where the family started breaking down, that it wasn't that important anymore. Jobs are more important than humans, don't you know? How's it been going since 1960, 1970s? Maybe, just maybe, this might be crazy talk. It might be chauvinistic and unwoke and horrible and, ah, oh, it might be, or might be crazy like a fox. It might be. It might be that God had it right all along and we're just too smart for our britches. Right? Since 1960, do you know that almost 75% of the kids in a household in 1960, 75% of them had a mom and a dad that had been married once to each other? 1970 goes to 60%. 19 or 2000, let's go to 2015. Let's cut to the chase, 45%. When the census is done in 2020, if you stay at that pace, it'll probably be in the 30 percentile. That you have kids being raised, okay? And I know we all gotta make situations work, okay? But I'm just saying, I'm, there has been a breakdown in the family and maybe, just maybe, it might be part of the problem today. And I would submit to you that maybe we should just get back to the basics here. Men and women are just a little different. And they're designed for different things. I don't think one is superior or inferior. I think when women lead, they should lead in a female way. I think when men lead, they should lead in a male way. 
I think when women pray, they should pray in a modest way. I think when men pray, they should pray. It's not that complicated. It's the way we are. So God help us all, right? (laughs) Amen. So Father, we're so thankful for you and your word. We pray that you'd be glorified in our lives this day as we go, as you are in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen, guys. God bless you. Happy New Year.